Okay, our first reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 53. In the Red Bibles, that's page 1147. So I'll just give you a moment to find that. Isaiah chapter 53. Page 1147. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. And be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Our second reading this morning is from John chapter 12, uh, verses 34 to 50, and in the Red Bibles can be found on page 1672. John chapter 12, starting at verse 34. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? 
Who is this son of man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Thanks, Henry. Let me pray for us uh, as we come to look at that passage in John. Our Father, we thank you for this record of Jesus' life and teaching in John's Gospel. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit with us, the same Spirit who caused these words to be written all those centuries ago, now present with us to help us understand and apply these truths to our lives. And we recognize that in this passage, there are things that are hard to understand and even harder to accept. So please give us soft and humble hearts. Would you enable us to, to receive your word, to accept it, to embrace it, and to live in the light of it? For Jesus' sake. Amen. How would you complete the sentence? If you want to know what makes me tick, you need to realize... I asked some members of our gospel community, and I'm going to read their responses. You can try and guess who it is. Uh, if you want to know what makes me tick, you need to know that I am passionate about all people feeling included, especially our smallest members of the church. Who's that? Lindsay, of course. 
Uh, if you want to know what makes me tick, you need to talk to my wife and watch all of the Rocky movies. Henry Davis, well then. Uh, if you want to know what makes me tick, you need to realize I like to be thorough. Sam Davis, yeah, it's good to know. Uh, if you want to know what makes me tick, you need to know that my ancestors were convicts. That's probably most people here, isn't it? That was Bron. Uh, if you want to know what makes me tick, you need to realize I love Jesus, I overthink things, and I make the best music playlists ever. Not Johnny. Holly. Get in touch with Holly. Follow her on Spotify. Uh, if you want to know what makes me tick, you need to know how much sleep I've had. That's my wife. And it wasn't much. <laughs> well, if you want to know what makes Jesus tick... If you want to understand Jesus, then you need to realize that he came to die. As we saw last week, Jesus said that was the whole reason that he came. His death on the cross was his moment of glory, his finest hour. The glory of Jesus is most clearly seen. The glory of God is most clearly seen in Jesus' death on the cross. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you're familiar with your Bible, then that probably wasn't news to you. But it is surprising, isn't it? The cross sure didn't seem very glorious. There's a man covered in blood, hanging naked, nailed to a piece of wood. An object of scorn and shame and condemnation. And Jesus says that's his moment of glory. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. It seems like lunacy. And yet for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because it's through the shame and the suffering of Jesus that our souls are saved. He dies our death as our substitute in our place. And by doing so, he brings life to many through the cross, God is turning the values of this world upside down. The cross reveals that the way of true greatness is to serve. The way to real glory is to humble yourself. The way to true riches is to give your money away. The way to find your life is to lay your whole life down. The cross challenges the value system of the world. And so if you still value what the world values power and achievement and success and reputation and image, you won't like the cross. It will be foolish to you. It'll be offensive to you. If in pride you're holding on to your life, your goodness, your reputation, your respectability, then you'll reject the cross. You'll reject Jesus because he calls you to admit your need and your helplessness and to submit your life to him. This passage at the end of John 12 marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. Chapters 13 to 17 in John, Jesus is with his closest friends, the disciples in the upper room, his final teaching to them before the events of his passion and death in chapters 18 and 19, his resurrection in chapter 20 and 21. 
So these are the last words of Jesus to the crowd, to the world at large. And so they take on an added importance, don't they? And in these words, Jesus explains why people don't believe in him and why people need to believe in him. They explain why people don't believe in Jesus and why people need to believe in Jesus. Those are the two points that are going to guide us through. Firstly, why people don't believe in Jesus. John gives us two big reasons. He says, verse 37, that people would not believe. Have a look again. Verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in them, in him. They would not believe. They, they chose not to believe. They refused to believe. But then in verse 39, he says they could not believe. Verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. They would not believe. Their choice, their responsibility, they could not believe. They were unable to. Those things seem contradictory, don't they? We ask, well, which is it? And the Bible says it's both. But we're going to explore them a bit more. Firstly, this idea that they would not believe. Verse 37, it wasn't because of a lack of evidence. John says they, they saw the signs that Jesus performed, but they still wouldn't believe. Why not? We'll, we'll get on to that. But it's worth pausing and taking this in. They saw the miracles and they wouldn't believe. They saw Jesus and they wouldn't believe. I don't know about you, but so many people have said to me over the years, if God would just appear to me and do some miracle in my presence, then I'd believe. And maybe they would, but definitely not necessarily. Because there were so many people in Jesus' day who saw him, heard him, saw the miracles firsthand, and still would not believe. They had all the evidence they needed. It doesn't mean the evidence is faulty. No, the evidence is good. John has written his whole gospel recording the miraculous signs that Jesus did so that we might believe. But if people don't want to believe, if they can see where the evidence is pointing and they don't like the implications for their life, then all the evidence in the world won't persuade them. Now, I find this encouraging because when people reject my attempts to share the gospel, my invitations for them to come and take a look at Jesus, when people reject that, I easily assume I've done something wrong, must be my fault. But even though I do need to work hard at being a faithful, winsome witness to Jesus, if people rejected Jesus after hearing him and seeing him perform miracles, well, I shouldn't be surprised if people reject me too. So why don't people believe, not because of a lack of evidence? Why do people refuse to believe even in the face of good evidence? Well, I think the answer comes in verses 42 and 43. 42 and 43, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. 
for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Now, it's not clear here if their belief was a completely false belief or flawed. It was certainly flawed. It seems that they were convinced by the evidence they could see the truth about Jesus, but they weren't willing to commit their lives to Jesus. They weren't willing to own their faith publicly because of fear. Verse 43, they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Now, literally, that says they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. I think that's important, this idea of glory, because we saw last week this whole section is about the glory of the cross. In verse 41, we're told Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. What was the glory of Jesus that Isaiah saw? Well, verse 38 is a quote from Isaiah 53 that Henry read. What did the glory of Jesus look like for Isaiah? It looked like a man despised and rejected. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. And yet Isaiah sees that it's through that suffering that many will be justified, put right with God. It's everything that Jesus has been talking about in this conversation so far. Isaiah saw that it was through the suffering and rejection of Jesus that many would be saved. Isaiah saw the glory of the cross. Glory in weakness, glory in shame, glory through suffering that many would be saved. That's the glory of God. That's what God values. That's what God honors. Humble, sacrificial service for the sake of others. But these people, John says, they loved the glory of man, the glory of the world, more. They loved reputation and image and popularity more than the glory of God's. So why don't people believe in Jesus? Why don't people follow Jesus? Why do people reject our invitations to come and explore Christianity? Well, a fundamental reason is because they love the glory of man, they love the glory of the world more than the glory of God. They're still in the value system of the world. They want a conquering savior, not a crucified one. They want a savior who will affirm their own goodness, not one who exposes their sin. They want a savior who will lead them in comfort and glory, not one who calls them in the way of the cross. Jesus calls us to admit our need to submit our lives, to humble ourselves, and people don't want that. They may see where the evidence is leading, but they don't like the implications. What will my friends think if I became a Christian? What would I have to give up? I, I don't want to change my lifestyle in order to follow Jesus. So why don't people believe? John says, firstly, they, they would not believe. They choose not to, and they're responsible for that choice. But secondly, he says, they could not believe. Because, verse 39, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he, that is God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts 
So they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. This is uncomfortable, but we can't dodge it, can we? It's pretty clear. John is saying, quoting Isaiah, that God is active in hardening people's hearts, blinding their eyes so that they can't believe. Now, verse 39 does suggest that God does this as a result of their refusal to believe. So verse 39 begins, for this reason. They still would not believe. They're refusing to believe. It's as if God is saying, because you've rejected me again and again and again, well, now you've lost your opportunity to believe. Now you're going to be hardened and set in that response of rejection. And there's a hint of a similar idea earlier on in verses 35 and 36. Verse 35, Jesus said, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Verse 36, believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. There's just a hint, I think, in those verses that if you don't take the opportunity to believe, then you may lose that opportunity. Jesus may hide himself from you. It's certainly true, isn't it, that the more you reject Jesus, the harder your heart becomes the harder it becomes for you to accept him. You get stuck in a rut. You just get used to it. You get stuck in that way of responding. But we're still left with a bit of a dilemma here, aren't we? Why don't people believe? Is it because they won't believe? They've chosen not to and they're responsible for that choice? Or is it that they can't believe? That God has hardened hardened their hearts, that God is in control of who will believe and who won't. Which is it? Who's responsible? Seem contradictory, but the Bible holds them together. I mean, just look, within two verses, we've got both ideas. They would not believe, they could not believe. And you see that again and again through the Bible. Think of the story of the Exodus. Who was it that hardened Pharaoh's heart? Through those chapters, as God brings plagues into Egypt, we're told sometimes Pharaoh hardened his heart. And other times we're told God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, which is it? God or Pharaoh? The Bible says it's both. And it's not 80% of one and 20% of the other or 20% of one and 80% of the other, or 50-50. No, it's 100% of both. We are really, truly, fully responsible for the choices that we make, and God is absolutely in control of the choices that we make. And we mustn't ever emphasize one at the expense of the other. The greatest example of this, of course, is the cross itself. In Acts chapter 4, the believers say, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. All those people conspired and decided that they were going to put Jesus to death. And they are responsible for that choice. But then it says immediately afterwards, they did what your power God's, they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. 
They made the choice. They're responsible for it. They're guilty for killing Jesus. But they were doing what God had decided beforehand should happen. Got to hold them together. We can't understand it, but we can embrace it. What does that mean? How does that apply? It seems very kind of theological, doesn't it, up in the air? But I think it is quite practical. Because if we believed everything was our responsibility, then we'll be filled with anxiety. It's all down to us. It's all on us. But if we believed that it was all predetermined and our choices made no difference, well, then we'd end up passive, indifferent. But if we can embrace both, then we'll engage in calm, trusting activity. We'll engage in prayerful effort. It means, as we think about why people believe or don't believe and how they respond, it, it means that we'll call on people to, to believe, to, to choose life, to accept Christ, because they have a real choice that they're responsible for. And it means that we'll pray that God will work enabling that person to believe and put their trust in Christ. You've probably still got more questions, and that's fine. I'll pass them to Kate later. But that's point one. Why don't people believe? Secondly, why people need to believe. More briefly, verse 44, then Jesus cried out. That is striking, isn't it? These, this is Jesus' last public words. He's crying out. Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus is saying that our response to him is not just a response to some philosophy. If we reject Jesus, we're not just rejecting a religious set of ideas. We're rejecting God himself. Jesus has come to save us from darkness and bring us into his light. And Jesus has come to save us from judgment and bring us into his life. Verse 47. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and doesn't accept my words. The very words I have spoken that will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus says he didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He didn't come with a spear in his hand, but a spear in his side. The one who is the light of the world was plunged into the darkness of the cross. The one who has the right to judge was judged in our place. Jesus has come to save the world, to, to bring us, to lead us into eternal life, to give us the right to become children of light, children of God. He's accomplished that rescue through his death on the cross. 
And so how you respond to the cross is absolutely crucial. Think of the cross as a a life ring being thrown to a a drowning woman. The, The life ring is there to save her. But if that woman rejects that life ring, well, they're sealing their own fate, aren't they? In the same way, if we reject the rescue offered to us through the cross, we leave ourselves condemned. We leave ourselves unrescued. We leave ourselves facing judgment. If Jesus is the only way for us to be rescued, then what you make of Jesus, how you respond to Jesus, how you respond to his cross is the most important decision you'll ever face. And remember as we finish that the opportunity to respond won't last forever. I guess all of us will know people whose lives have been cut short, who've died in a tragic accident or some other sudden death. And even if that's not what lies in store for us, we need to heed the warning of this passage, don't we? That if we continue to reject Jesus, it will only become harder and harder for us to accept him. The story goes that a senior demon once tasked a few junior demons to come up with their best strategy to prevent people believing in Jesus. The first demon said, and I'm going to get the story slightly wrong, I can't remember where it comes from. The first said, I'll tell people they shouldn't believe in Jesus because God doesn't exist. Rubbish, said the senior demon. Everyone knows deep down that God exists. He's revealed himself in the world that he's made. The second demon said, I'll tell people they shouldn't believe in Jesus because miracles can't happen. Rubbish, said the senior demon. There's too much evidence for the miracles of Jesus. The third said, I'll tell people they don't need to believe in Jesus because there's plenty of time. Brilliant, said the senior demon. Go and spread that message. Jesus said, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark doesn't know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you speak the truth. And though it's hard to hear, we thank you that you don't pull your punches, that you're clear with us about the way of rescue, the only way of rescue, through you, through your death on the cross. And we pray for ourselves that we would be people who believe, who respond in faith, who take up the call to admit our need, to take hold of the cross as our way of salvation and to follow you in the way of humble, sacrificial service. 
We pray that you'd help us as we think about the people around us who we long to come to believe in you. Pray that you'd help us take the truths of this passage and apply them to our hearts and the way that we seek to engage. Help us to hold those two truths of people's responsibility and your sovereignty together so that we're people who, who pray hard and make every effort, people who engage in calm and trusting activity, who call on people to believe and pray that you would enable them to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.